I wanted to start by uh, trying to set the scene for why this is a good bit of the Bible. I know innately we know that it's a good bit of the Bible because it's in the Bible, but I want to think briefly, why is it so good? And I want to start by uh, referring to an article I read a little while ago called, Is Facebook Making Us Lonely? Is anyone on Facebook here? A few of you. Uh, I think the, the, the more interesting question probably is to ask who isn't. Uh, apparently, it's the over 65s, incidentally, who are the fastest growing demographic on Facebook. So there you go. That's probably because everyone else is already there, I suspect. Uh, if you're not, don't worry, apparently it's making us lonely. So let me just briefly read you a little bit from this article. This lady says, I've been lying to myself. I think many of us have. I think that Facebook gives us a false sense of connection and friendship. I might know how that one friend was dressed when she went out to lunch with her high school posse, but I haven't talked to her in weeks. So I don't know how she felt about going to that lunch or how she feels about anything else going on in her life. I know that another friend's son has had fever last week, but I don't know how the transition to his new school has gone or how he's doing with the changes in their lives. I never feel like I need to call anyone or email anyone because, hey, I checked in on them on Facebook and they looked fine. Well, here's my revelation. I miss the deeper conversations. I miss knowing more. And no, I don't need to get emails from those 900 people because, frankly, I'm not that close, nor have I ever been that close to most of those people. But my friends, my true friends, I miss them. I think that these superficial conversations and check-ins, which give me the false feeling of having connected with people, are the reason I feel lonely and dissatisfied as I sit here at my desk. Because I'm sure that every single friend I think I've touched base with feels the same way about me. And really, nobody knows how I'm really doing over here. Intriguing, isn't it? 900 friends, not really known. Here's another article I read. Uh, It was uh, from last year. And the, the headline caught my attention. It said, millions of men have no close friends. Stoicism and isolation make lonely mates of men. New research by the Movember Foundation reveals that a devastating number of men feel friendless. The survey found that 51% of respondents, the equivalent of about 2.5 million British men, have no close friends. Being married or middle-aged significantly increases the likelihood that men have no one apart from their partner, if they are married, they feel that they can turn to in a crisis. These sad statistics reflect skyrocketing suicide rates among men. Later, it says in the article, the Australian research found that one quarter or 1.1 million men aged between 30 and 65 have few or no social connections, while about one third were unsatisfied with the quality of their relationships. The two main reasons for this were that they didn't feel as if their mates could help them with the problems they were facing, so they didn't bother bringing them up. That was 79% of men surveyed. And they didn't feel emotionally supported, 76% of men. Now, it's fun, isn't it? Because I could have just read this, this psalm this morning and told you how excellent it is. But what this information is telling us is actually that there's a real need. And I can't assume that it's just outside this church, can I? 
Not with statistics like that. So here's the thing. Apparently, vast numbers of us are feeling lonely. And even those with hundreds of friends are feeling personally unknown. Nobody knows me. Nobody truly understands me. And I don't know where to turn, even if I wanted to. That's a pretty sad state of affairs, I think you'd agree. Have a listen to this word. Here's how Psalm 139 opens. I want you to have it in front of you. It's on page 621. It says this in verse 1. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. Gee, we hear that differently, don't we, if we know those other statistics are true. Here's someone who truly does know us. When I was a kid, I used to, uh, I used to love bedtime, and uh, not particularly because I was immediately going to fall asleep, but because I loved getting into bed and having my dad tuck me into bed. And he'd do it really firmly. And I'd just say, Dad, I'm not tucked in enough. So I'd be kind of... And I used, to, I used to love that feeling, that feeling of security and comfort and just knowing I'm, I'm here, I'm where I'm supposed to be tonight. Uh, I want you to hear these words uh, in verses uh, 2 to 6, uh, Psalm 139. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in, behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. That hemming in, that tucking in, is supposed to be security, surrounding us, encompassing us, intimate, knowing, loving, close. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? It's a beautiful picture of God's proximity, his closeness to us. The reason that God can be close to us, to each one of us, instead of just to one of us, is because of the nature of who God is, because of his distribution in the universe. Have a listen to this. As Jesus speaks to the Samaritan woman, he says this, God is spirit and his worshippers must worship him in spirit and in truth. We have one of these great big words. We talk about the attributes of God. We, we say that God is omnipresent. Have you heard that? It means he's present everywhere. He's able to be present everywhere because he's spirit. And so he fills, surrounds the, the world, is close to all people. And so we can say that God is with us, that he hems us in behind and before because of the nature of who he is as God. God is spirit. But we wonder, don't we? Uh, I, I love this, uh, this picture here. Here's a guy with a uh, teepee uh, in the middle of the desert, I assume somewhere near Nevada. He's got, um, he's got his dog with him and his solar panels. He's a guy who's trying to get off the grid. Do you know this idea? Off the grid. So there's no power lines coming in. He's totally self-sufficient with a teepee and a dog in the middle of the desert. I think we wonder, are there places that we can get away from everyone? Places that we can go to disconnect, to get away? 
I think there's even a, a question at times where we wonder, have we dropped off God's grid? Have we fallen off the edge of God's care plan? So the psalmist asks, King David asks in, in verse 7, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Where, where could I go that I would be off your grid, where there isn't uh, satellite coverage, uh, where the phone doesn't work? In fact, I was just talking to Daniel about good holidays. You go, well, you have no phone coverage. No one can reach you. There's that joyous feeling. Here the psalmist asks, where could I go from your presence? And so he points in a couple of different directions to explore which direction could I go where I'd be away from you, God. Uh, this magnificent thing up on the screen here uh, is a record. Uh, it's not made of vinyl. It's actually made of gold. Uh, sorry? Voyager. Exactly right, Russell. So this record is actually on a spaceship. It's actually on Voyager 1, uh, which was launched uh, in 1977. Uh, it's been travelling through our solar system uh, at a fair clip. It does about 61,000 kilometres an hour. It's pretty good. It's been travelling for 38 years. That's also pretty good. Uh, that puts us now out beyond Pluto. In fact, the number there, I've just written it up, it said um, 2 by 10 to the 10, uh, which I think that's the number of zeros I've got up there. So, so it's 20 billion kilometres away from Earth, carrying a record that has information about people out into the blackness of space. It's, I think it's got another, you know, thousand years or something before it gets anywhere near... Well, it's actually much longer than that. It's a long, long time before it gets near anything. But it's out there travelling, going. I want you to think about the vastness of our universe, and, and that's only just scratching the surface of our solar system, right? It, it's not actually getting close to anything that twinkles in the sky. If I go to the heavens, the psalmist says in verse 8, you are there. If I go to the heavens, you are there. At some point later in the year, we should get uh, Dr. Luke up here to talk about the vastness of the heavens, since he's a cosmologist. Uh, the vastness of space. But here's the thing. There's nowhere that you could go in this created universe that would be beyond the reach of our God. If I go to the heavens, you are there. Interestingly enough, we see people climb mountains all the time in the, in the Bible and quite often God meets them as they climb. Uh, have a listen to, uh, to this encounter. We, we heard it when we are doing our Mark series. In Mark 9 we hear, six days later, Peter, James and John with Jesus went with him and he led them up to a high mountain. Then a cloud appeared and covered them and a voice came from the cloud, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. They climb a mountain, they go up into the heavens, the cloud covers the mountain. Who do they meet? God. When Moses goes up the mountain, who does he meet on top of the mountain? God. Were I to, go to be going to the heavens, I would meet God there. God is even in the heavens. What about if we went in a different direction? Uh, this is a fantastic piece of kit. Um, this is called the Trieste. Uh, it's a bathyscath. A bathyscath. Um, not a bathysphere. Does anyone know what a bathysphere is? Basically a round steel ball you drop down the bottom on a cable, so it's kind of like a, a submarine that's made out of a ball, and you, you wind it back up again. A bathyscath is a free-floating one. See the ball at the bottom? Big steel ball. 
12 centimetres thick steel. Up the top is the flotation device. It's filled with lead weights. When they get to the bottom, they open the the little uh, gates and all the lead weights fall out and it floats back to the surface again. How deep? Well, in 1960, they went to the Challenger Deep and they went down 11,521 metres to the deepest point on the planet that is accessible by humans. That's deep, isn't it? I think they're a little bit crazy, personally. I wouldn't want to be... The ball is two metres wide, so it's about, you know, about yay big, two men in it, and they were down there 11 and a half kilometres at the bottom of the ocean. So the psalmist asks, if you go to the Challenger Deep, if I make my bed in the depths, what? You are there. You are there. We can go to the highest heights. We can go to the deepest depths. And what will we find? God fills and engages with all in his universe. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. Have a listen to someone who carried out a practical experiment in this. Some of us have been reading Jonah recently through our, um, our reading. So we know Jonah, don't we? He, he uh, had a plan from God to take the message. He said, I'm not going to take the message. He went on a boat. A storm blew up. He said, I'm the reason for the storm. You should throw me out and you'll be saved. So they threw him out of the boat and he sank down into the depths. As he sank down, a huge fish swallowed him. At this point, you're thinking for Jonah, it's game over, yeah? Do not press go, do not pass go, do not collect $200. It's, it's game over. However, it says in the belly of the fish that Jonah prayed. Here's some of that prayer in Jonah 2.2. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From the deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help and you listened to my cry. Here's the cool thing. Prayer reception works inside a fish. If I were to make my bed in the depths, you were there. Jonah is saved in the depths of the sea, in the midst of a fish. He is saved because the God who is there hears him and answers his prayer. Some of us uh, want to escape uh, from our troubles and we head away. I don't know if you've ever done this. Uh, you, you run away. You just say, look, this is all too hard. I need to have a holiday. I need to change my scene. I need to get away. Apparently, according to statistics, at any one time, there are over a million Australians overseas. That's a pretty big number, isn't it? Over a million Australians are overseas. So the psalmist asks, if I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, yep. so, so if, if, I, if I pick up my problems and my troubles and I jet out of here, if I go to Mascot or up the road when it's built um, to our wonderful second airport, uh, if, we, if we get out of here, uh, what will happen? Well, the answer is that we would meet a place where God is already on mission. So you say, I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to go somewhere to the ends of the earth because then I'll be away from my problems. I might even be off God's grid. I want you to hear how God talks about the world and the ends of the world. Uh, here in Isaiah, he says, I will set a sign among them. And I'll send some of those who survive to the nations, to the distant islands that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory. They will proclaim my glory among the nations and they will bring all your people from all the nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem 
as an offering to the Lord. In Isaiah, at the end of Isaiah, the idea is that the good news will go out to the ends of the earth. When we take the good news out, this is an interesting thing about mission. When we take the good news out, we can often think we're bringing God in our suitcases to whatever place we're going. I'm bringing God to Tonga. I've done that on mission. Or to Vanuatu. I'm bringing God here. What's the answer? No, no, no. God fills his universe. What we might be bringing is the announcement that God is already there, that Jesus has died for them, that he loves them, but God is already there. All we're doing is bringing the message to places that God is already on mission. And so we see in Acts 1.8, we see this wonderful call, don't we? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Why? Because the God who fills the earth longs for his name to be acknowledged at the ends of the earth. Wherever we go, we will find a God who is already on mission before us. I've got a mate who uh, posted on Facebook. How about that? That was nice. See, I know all about him because he posted on Facebook. No, he posted on Facebook and he said, I'm going across to Israel. I said, that sounds great. Uh, what are you doing over there? He said, you need to follow Mike Baird's Facebook page. <laughs> okay, I'll do that. He's going with Mike Baird. Uh, one of, one of uh, his friends dropped underneath. He said, I hear you have a good guide. I think if I was going to go to Jerusalem, I'd want to make sure I had a good guide, uh, particularly at the moment. I don't want to step into the wrong neighborhood. I certainly don't want to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. If I'm going over there, I want a good guide. Have a listen to this God that we have. Have a look at uh, at verse 10. So verse 9 says, If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, verse 10, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Isn't this beautiful? This is God's intimate intention to guide and direct and care for his people. Even there your hand will guide me. There's nowhere you can go beyond his presence. And his presence will be lovingly expressed in his guidance and care. Your right hand will hold me fast. We have a much better promise than just the idea that David said, I know God will be with me. Here's the promise that Jesus spoke to us in John 16. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will only speak of what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. What's the great comfort we have? Well, the God who is spirit says he will take up residence in our heart as his holy spirit. How will he guide? How will he care? How will he protect his people? By taking up residence in our hearts. The Holy Spirit will guide and protect us. It's funny though, I think... um, I think at times, not just that we run away physically, but there are times that we hope we could hide from God. Uh, The psalmist expresses this feeling. If I say, verse 11, if I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me. This idea of I want to be on my own, away from God. Maybe I know I'm about to do something wrong. And we just hope God's not watching at this point. If I, surely the darkness will hide me. Surely the, the light will become night around me. Have a look at how this verse unfolds. Even the darkness 
will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. See, we might think to ourselves that under the cover of darkness, God doesn't see, but he has holy night vision. As the people in Ezekiel's time found out, have a listen to this. Uh, The people had been kicked out of the land because of their unfaithfulness. Here's what happens in Ezekiel 8. God says, he said to Ezekiel, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of Israel are doing in the darkness? Each at the shrine of his own idol. They say the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. It's really intriguing, isn't it? There's sinful wrongdoing happening. And God's saying to Ezekiel, he's saying, have you seen this? Do you know this? What's the answer? Well, the answer is not only has God seen the evil they're doing in, in silence, in secret, but he's actually heard what they're thinking in their heads as they do it. Are they off his radar? Not at all. God's holy night vision sees the sin done in darkness. That should be a concern for those of us who think we can escape from God's watchful eye. There is also a comfort to the God who can see in the darkness. Have a listen to Isaiah 9. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. We know this, don't we? The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You see, God will send light to the darkness to save his people. It's a great comfort to know that God can bring light to the darkness. And what about that bit at the end? I know you know that bit at the end, don't you? Wasn't the psalm going brilliant? And then somebody dropped into Jody's reading and inserted another terrible psalm at the end. Did did you hear how this happened? Did you notice it? Did it concern anyone here? If only you, it says in verses 19 to 22, if only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Isn't that the bit we want to just cut out? Certainly the bit I wanted to cut out of the sermon, but then I thought I wasn't being true to the whole of the word that's in front of us. See, here's the thing. Why don't we like this? We don't like it because it sounds like it's going against Jesus who said, love your enemies, yeah? And pray for those who persecute you. Here's the thing. David hadn't met Jesus, had he? When he writes his psalm, he only knows so much of God's character. But what he knows is this. Have a listen to Psalm 119. Teach me, Lord, the way of your decrees that I may follow it to the end. Give me understanding so that I may keep your law and obey it with all my heart. Direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find my delight. Don't, don't be too distressed at David here. What he's saying is, I love your commands and your law so much that I want my heart to beat with your heart. These people have set themselves up as your enemies. Am I supposed to love that these people hate you? It says they're bloodthirsty men who misuse your name. See, I think we've kind of lost the bit, which is the righteous anger. Do you remember Jesus going into the temple? And he said, it's okay, guys, I love you all. Keep going in your sin. He didn't, did he? Righteous anger burned with him. He said, this is not acceptable. This is unholy, it's ungodly, it's ruining the purpose that I've set for this. Now, it's not that you and I 
need to start hating more. But I think we need to be more alive for the God who doesn't tolerate sin. Do you you see this? See, the cross is so horrible because God hates sin. Yeah? If it wasn't a biggie, he could have just said, no problems, we'll just move on. But the terrible cost of the cross tells us that sin is an appalling, costly exercise. So what we see in the psalm here is David is so on board with God's heart that he is angry with God against those who do evil. The wonderful challenge we have is to bring the good news to those who currently hate the living God. To tell them that he has loved them enough to forgive their sins and wickedness and rebellion. So we shouldn't stand down our hatred of sin. We should elevate the cross and extend the message of forgiveness. Does this make sense? I think it's very challenging. It's a common heart that David and God have. Well, here's the thing. I want to say as I I draw towards the close of this, uh, this message, I think we'll face disappointment from our friends and family that those statistics can't be outside of our church. They have to be here as well. The one place that we'll never find disappointment, however, is with our God. He'll never let us down. So how do we think about applying this message? Well, I want us to draw comfort from Jesus' fulfilment of what David knew. Let me explain what I mean. David knew that if he went to the heavens, he'd find God there. Where is Jesus now reigning? He was raised to life again. Where does he now sit? In heaven, at the right hand of the Father. If I go to the heavens, you're there. He says, if I go to the depths, you're there. Jesus walked through the valley of the shadow of death, didn't he? And rose victorious on the other side. If I go to the ends of the world, you are there. Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I want us to take tremendous courage and comfort from the fact that we will never be beyond the love and care of our God. Draw comfort from Jesus' fulfillment. Secondly, uh, do you remember the picture with the uh, night, night vision goggles on? I, I, I think we need to seek honesty in our confession. Oh, I'm going to talk to myself and to you for a second. I think we can make ourselves seem more holy than we are in our confession. Okay, God, I am going to say sorry for these acceptable sins that I have done. The really dark ones, the really bad ones, we just kind of, I won't even mention them to you, God, on the basis that I hope you don't know. That's a lie that we're just telling ourselves The God who really knows us, really knows my heart, knows my actual sin. It's not hidden from him. And so here's the thing. When we we trot out a pretend or, let's say, a part confession, the God who truly knows sees the things we haven't said. Do you get that? He actually knows them. Nothing done in secret is hidden from him. And so when it comes time for our confession, I think we just need to fess up. God, you know the depths of my sin. I have truly grieved you in these ways. Please forgive me. I think we need, I think I need to seek honesty in our confession. No more hiding. Not least of all because it's a lie and it's a fake and it doesn't trick anyone. Thirdly, I think we need to join God in mission where we are. So uh, ends of the earth, wherever you are, 
your workplace, the circle of friends that you have, God is there. We don't bring him there. He's at work. Join him in mission where you are. He's already there. Fourthly, I think this is really just something we need to work on together, isn't it, church? If men don't have friends, if women are pretending to know each other, then wouldn't it be great to deepen the fellowship of those who know God, who are known by him? And so the question is really, are our life groups places where genuine friendship and relationship happen? Or will we keep the mask on? Because if you're not known, I want to ask, are you making yourself known? I want to create a church where we are comfortable, where we are able to relate in such a way that men might have someone to turn to, that women have, might have someone who truly know them. Now, that's, that's a big thing to ask, isn't it? But if we're short of that now, guess who can help make it right? Well, God, yes, good answer. And each one of us making a choice every time we gather together, not just to talk about the football and the weather, not just to talk about the funny video we watched, but actually to engage, to listen, to care. Do we truly know one another? So David says, Search me, God. Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this knowledge that is too wonderful for us. There's nowhere high, deep, far or close where you will not be. Father, we thank you for your hand of guidance. We thank you for the comfort of knowing that you will never leave us or forsake us. We pray, Father, that we might act with honesty as we confess our sins before you. We pray that you might build intimacy in our fellowship here. We pray, Father, that we might take deep comfort and joy from the knowledge of your spirit with us and that you might lead us in the way everlasting for your namesake. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.